This is Real Talk, the Customer Insights Show with Jen Mancusi, a top-rated live stream and podcast in the market research and insights industry. We stream live on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, and you can listen to us on all major podcast channels and watch on dbtv.tv. Join Jen and her guests for a weekly discussion around topics that will help you understand your customers better. Real Talk is presented to you by Vox Pop Me, the leader in video research for over a decade. Here's today's conversation. Hello, insights professionals, marketers, and everyone who wants to understand their customers better. I'm your host, Jen Mancusi. Insights are most powerful when they help us bring value to our customers, uh, which also shows up in the form of sales and renewed sales. Questor's SVP of Strategy, Brett Townsend, joins me on this episode to discuss the topic. Welcome to the show, Brett. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you today? I'm great. Good, good. We're having a little bit of a late winter storm here, which not prepared for at the moment, but we're going to warm things up on this chat today, so we'll be all good. (laughs) So... To get us started on today's episode, can you tell everybody a little bit about your career and insights? Sure. Um, I think like most people, I kind of fell backwards into insights. Nobody kind of dreams as a little kid that they're going to be a market researcher when they grow up. And and I'm certainly no exception to that. But I I started my career in broadcasting, actually, and uh, did TV and radio broadcasting and then slowly transitioned out of that purposefully and eventually into insights. So um, did a little stint with uh, with Nielsen Media Research and then uh, worked for a publishing company for about a year. But then really, I kind of count my my real start in, in insights with Decision Analyst and, and Jerry Thomas, who kind of took a chance on me and hired me, was there for about seven years and then jumped over to the corporate side and have been there for the last 15 years. I uh, was at PepsiCo for nine years, Electrolux for six, and then for about a year at Lowe's. And then I uh, just made the decision at the beginning of this year that uh, I was going to leave the corporate side and go back to the agency side now with Quester. Amazing. Um, a lot of leaps back and forth and probably a lot of interesting learnings that you can share across those different businesses. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think, um, you know, vendor side, client side, brand side, whatever you want to call it, partners need to know about each other in order to be successful and build those successful partnerships? You know, I think sometimes that there is a bit of a us versus them mentality, whichever side you're on, um, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, agency side, supplier side, people think, oh my gosh, those people on the corporate side, they're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. It's like, why are they asking for this? Don't they know that that's not the right way you do it? And then the people on the on the corporate side sometimes look at the agency side and go, don't they understand the pressure we're under and why they can't they just do what we're asking? And so I think sometimes we're we're pitted against each other when we really shouldn't be. And I think that's kind of the the, the big thing that I've learned now being on both sides of the fence is that the, the pressure on both sides is very real, but different. And so it's just understanding what those differences are. I think if you're on the agency side to to remember the pressure that corporate people are under, that in many cases, the decisions that or the things that they're asking you to do are coming from the top down and they may not have the, 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 the ability to push back or to do things differently. And 
and some of the requests that we get on the corporate side are, are unreasonable, let's be frank. <laughs> and so there's just a lot of pressure and a lot of just the meetings that you have on the corporate side are insane. And so it's hard to get a hold of people and whatever. So I think there's just kind of understanding the pressure that that corporate people are under. And then if you're on the corporate side, it's understanding that you know, the agency people are there to help you. And in many cases, they will offer something that is a better alternative. And so if we're so locked into what we think is right, then sometimes we won't take advantage of the expertise that people have on the on the agency side, because they work with a lot of different clients doing a lot of different things. And they've seen a lot of things, whereas Corporate people can get very tunnel vision where, you know, let's say you're working on a small sub brand within a larger corporation and you work on it so much that you think that, well, everybody's got to know about this or it's like, you know, this brand is so huge and everybody should know about it. And it's really not. <laughs> and, and so you could have your agencies give you that type of advice and, and say, well, instead of doing that, how about this? Or instead of just focusing on methodology, why don't we focus on this? And, and so I think it's just understanding that we're really in this together when people talk about insights they're talking about all of us not just some of us and so i think if there's more of that just understanding on both sides and cooperation i think i mean it, it's really would solve so much i think of what's there and not that it's bad or anything right now you know that i mean it's not like it's really terrible but i think there's some of those misunderstandings or or just the the inability to really see where the other person's coming from that causes some of the contention. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you're right, it's not like it's all bad, but there's definitely, you know, the the client relationships that are the strongest certainly for us are the ones where we we really are true partners where we invest the time to understand exactly what challenges that our customers are being faced with and mm-hmm. they seek our expertise to help them and that we are there as a support to enable them to push back when they need to, or to get the insights that they need to make the right decisions internally. You know, it, I, I don't, I don't see as much of the us versus them as maybe a few years ago. I think it's gotten more collaborative and more, more partnership focused in the last several years. Um, but those are great tips to just kind of like take a step back and try to understand the, uh, the pressures that whoever you're working with is under, that's good life lesson. <laughs> yeah, and just have a little humility about what you don't know and what you don't understand, especially if you're on the corporate side and have never been on the agency side or on the agency side and have never been on the corporate side. There is going to be just a, a level of, of, of experience that you're not going to have. And so just, you know, recognizing that and having a little humility to, to learn about the other side or to really understand, try to understand those differences goes a long way. Yeah, that's great advice for sure. Um, You've noted that insights must lead to activation and sales, which of course. I don't think I'm unique in that, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) How do you get insights into the right spot to bring sales and and where do do companies start with that? Wow. (laughs) This is one of those questions I think I could talk for like 10 minutes straight and you would never get a a word in, but you know, let's. We can kind of discuss this. So, you know, where to start? I, I think I think it helps to maybe take a step back and to understand our industry as a whole and, and where it came from and, and the inherent limitations that are built into the system because of our origin. So if you go back to the 1930s and 40s when 
consumer insights or market research is really gaining its legs and starting to develop, everybody in the, in the everybody that did market research was either an academic or a clinician. And so when you are when you're doing market research as a clinician or an academic, your goals are different than if you are on a if you're a part of a corporation trying to sell a product. So, you know, the the uh, the methodologies that were developed, you know, in the 30s and 40s, 50s and 60s that are still in use today, they were originally there to solve a problem. You know, we're not really understanding the emotional part of what consumers are saying. We just have data. So the focus group was invented um, or large quantitative studies that really started to gain traction in the 1960s allowed us to quantify data. And so there's all of, and that's where a lot of discrete choice and, and some of these methodologies came in. But a lot of the proof uh, or the outcomes of those, of those projects were more about proving the validity of the methodology and so it would be implemented rather than actually trying to sell a product or a service or to innovate against um, or, or to innovate on a brand or, or, or develop marketing communication or things like that. So I think just inherently our um, our industry has, has has got a built in need almost to prove methodologies or to focus on those things. And that's not really what corporations care about. Um, corporations care about impact and results. And when you look at today's world now, where you take, you know, kind of a, 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 an industry like Consumer Insights, which is evolving, but not at the rate of other major industries. And then you have the corporate climate today where literally every industry you could think of as being disrupted by someone or by a group of, of companies that have come in and are doing things, you know, I mean, Box Pops in our industry, Quester's done it. There's been a lot of disruptors. And then, of course, on the corporate side, we could name all of the brands that have just come in and disrupted things. It's like the need for insights has never been greater. And so, and if you look at things kind of the way I look at it is that we should have as, as consumer insights uh, professionals, we should have no natural predators, you know, in, in, in the wild, because everybody should want what we have. Everybody should need what we have um, because we're there to help, you know, bring answers and, and bring solutions. And so sales and marketing and innovation and everybody should really love us. Um, but sometimes we're our own worst enemy because we're not focused sometimes on the right things. And those right things are, is this going to help us sell more stuff? I mean, that's it's as basic as that is. That's the question that I asked about that I ask about everything is that how is this going to help on the corporate side, my company or on the agency side, my client? How's it going to help them? sell more things, be more financially successful, because at the end of the day, that's what CEOs of companies care about. Amazing. I think you touched on something really profound. I like, I appreciate that you kind of went back a little bit in time to explain where this is coming from. And something clicked for me when you said that the outcome was proving the validity of the methodology wasn't about the insight or kind of what was what the findings were it was like look how accurate this these results are or whatever mm -hmm. um, I had a conversation on this show with Brad Dancer from WWE a while back where you know he said we got to stop putting the methodology at the front of our 
our results, right? Why are we, we're losing people. Everybody's Nobody cares. Right. Put it at the end. We shouldn't have to prove out how we did our work. We're not asking other people to show us how they do their jobs. Nope. And so interesting to kind of hear where that's coming from. But, um, but I think your approach and your thinking about like, how does this help me sell more stuff is the link that a lot of people miss, not just in insights. I mean, in any job that you're in working general. like, yeah, like tying back the, the impact of what you're doing to revenue or to sales or to some kind of ROI is like, that's the golden nugget. That's what everybody wants to do, right? To really like prove out that something's working. Yeah. And it's interesting because when you talk with CEOs, a lot of CEOs don't feel like that their organizations are insight driven. And that's so it's it's discouraging when you hear that. But Deloitte did a study, I think it was 2018, 2019, somewhere around there about uh, about insights driven organizations and about two thirds of the of the senior executives that they talked to said that they don't believe their com their companies are insights driven, you know, and so and and the way and it was specifically defined for them about you know where it's this consistent practice of embedding data and evidence based reasoning into the decision making process, and so when they don't feel that their companies are doing that, then what they revert to is many times gut decisions or listening to the inner circle and not really putting the consumer at the center of the of the conversation. And because we're all that way, it's, you know, it's not a fault of CEOs, but, you know, all of us is like when faced with a lack of, of information, we just guess the best way we can and move forward from there. And we know that that doesn't work. And, and so it's really just about how do we, how, how do we, it's, it's about really proving that we are there to help the company and not to come up with things that are interesting or things that make people nod their heads a little bit, but then the biggest the worst thing that can happen when we're talking to people is when they think, well, now what? Now what do we go do? <laughs> um, and, and because a lot of times when we're presenting, we're not really telling people what to go do. And that's all that a lot of these senior leaders are looking for is, I mean, I've been told point blank by several senior leaders, like, I need you to tell me what to do <laughs> or at least give me the information to make the decision on what to do. And we don't always do that. Yeah, totally. Um, that it's true that like when you don't have the information, you don't just wait for it. You do yeah. make a decision, right? Whether that's right or wrong. So that's so critical to have the right information at the right moment. What, what do you think? I mean, what do you think the percentage is if you had to put a number on it of like how many times the data, like the decision that's recommended by the data actually is taken? Cause you know, that's feedback I've heard from uh, some of our customers too, is like, you know, sometimes we have the information, we have the insight, it's leading you down a path and the business makes another decision. And that can be discouraging as well mm -hmm. for the teams that are, that are trying to make that impact. Yeah, what's that funny line? 60% of all stats are made up. <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't I wouldn't venture to guess how often that happens, but I know it happens quite a bit. And if you look at the climate that we're in, um, you know, we don't have months to to make these decisions like they did, like our forefathers did. 
Um, and, and a lot of times getting 100% accuracy is not even what senior executives expect of us. Like I mean, so many times it's like just 80% is great. Just it, that's better than nothing. And so that's kind of what I what I need you to help me uh, get to. But we're looking at, you know, shorter timelines and, and bigger disruption and, and different things like that. And so it kind of it, it's accelerated exactly what we do. Um, but to answer your question, it, it reminded me of a story of when I was at PepsiCo, I was in a global role there and I went over to Europe to meet with some teams there to implement some things that we were doing. And um, I got there and the the uh, the head of insights and marketing for that country was was a little distraught. I could tell when I got to the office and I said, well, you know, hey, tell me what's going on. And she briefly said that they just got out of a presentation with the GM um, and she said, he didn't do anything that we recommended. And I said, well, let me see what you presented to him. And she pulled out the presentation and we went through it. And at the end I said, so what did you actually tell him to do? And she like looked back over it and I said, let's look at these slides. What did you actually tell him to do? And it turns out that all they did was present data. There were no recommendations. There was no go do this because this is what this is. And she said, I feel like we just missed our chance. Mm. And I said, all right, let's do this. Before we start working on this other thing that I came for, I said, why don't you go to the GM, see if you can get some other time on his calendar in a day or two, and let's work on this. And so she got another time on his calendar. We spent the next three to four hours just redoing the presentation. It wasn't like they didn't have anything that they needed. They had everything they needed. It was just the way they chose to present it. Mm -hmm. And so we cut it down from like 20 slides to 10. We figured out what that we got on a, we got on the whiteboards and mapped out what the story that the data was. And in those 10 slides, we very clearly said, here's the problem. Here's the action. You know, here's the solution. And then at the very end, it was one, two, three, go do this, this, and this. And so then she presented it the next day when I was still there and came back and she was all smiles. And he's like, okay, he did it. He listened. He's, he's doing exactly, he agreed. And he did exactly with what we said. So it's a long, so it's a story that illustrates that the reason why a lot of times people don't make senior leaders don't make the decisions that we say that, or that we recommend is because we're not actually recommending any, that they go do anything. We're just presenting facts or data or information. We're not really, or even just, you can tell a great story, even, even if you're a great storyteller, but at the end, you don't resolve it with action. Then all you are is just like no different than somebody reading children's stories to, at the library to kids. You know, you're just, you're just there telling stories. And so it's really making sure that whether it's at the beginning or the end, I don't think there's any one right way to do it. It depends on your audience, but it's like, we've got to say, because of this, go do this. You know, it's it's the it's that here's the what, here's the so what, and here's the now what, and just go and and do that. So I think a lot of it is on us, and and, and a lot of that reason is is on us. Now there's always going to be senior leaders that won't do what we say, and that's out of our hands. We can't make them or force them or anything. All we can do is put the put that into the into the best way possible to recommend the solutions that we think should be should be done. I love that story. And I hope everybody out there listening has just written that down. This is how you structure your presentations. What, so what, and now what? I love that. It's such yeah, a simple- It doesn't even have to be in those sections, but just to include those things, yeah. because that's really what they're asking for. You know, every time I've been asked to solve a problem, 
it's it's because it's like we don't know what to go do or we don't know what the solution is so it's like here's what's going on here's why it's going on you know why is important but now here's what we go do about it and here's what it means to us so yeah, yeah. It, it sounds simple, <laughs> but a lot of times, again, having been on the corporate side, a lot of times we get bogged down with a lot of other things or, you know, when we're on the agency side, it's like, oh my gosh, there's just so much great info here. So much, so much great data that came out of this. We need to make sure they have all of it. And when I was on the corporate side, I would always tell the agency partners I worked with, I said, I don't need to know everything, you know, I just need to know what I need to know. And the further up the ladder you go, the less they need to know. So I don't need to know as much as my agency partners. My CMO didn't need to know as much as I know. And my CEO didn't need to know as much as the CMO knows. And so it's just really tailoring. And that's another thing that we can do better too, is, is having multiple versions of presentations that we share to people. Because I would never show the same presentation to the CEO that I showed to the marketing department. Because he or she didn't need to know everything that I was telling everybody in marketing he or she just needed to know exactly what they needed to know in order to make those executive decisions. And so a lot of times I think we just get lazy where, or because we have so much going on and we don't have time, but I, but I always made a point to have at least two to three versions of, of every re- presentation that I would give knowing who my audience would eventually be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's, that's the problem. We know too much, right? And- yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's the the age old problem of if I had more time, I've, I'd have written a shorter letter, right? Like it's not yeah. actually easy to, it's simple, but it's not easy to distill it down. But that's, that's the critical. Yeah. Cause and you just saying that triggered something that I would tell people. I'm like, just when you go to a restaurant and you are handed a spiral bound notebook, that is the menu. It's impossible to decide what to order. Like, first of all, you go, how could they possibly possibly make everything in this menu good? But then the other thing is just the whole paradox of choice and just like, there's just too much here. I can't take it in. Whereas you go to a higher end restaurant and it's a one sheet menu and it doesn't have as many choices on it, but it does have choices. It makes it a lot easier to make a decision. And so a lot of times when we go into these boardrooms with these massive presentations or tons of data, it just paralyzes everybody in the room. And, you know, it's like, take the simple menu approach and go in there with just the major points that you want to get across and then the major recommendations you're, you are, are giving. And then it makes it so much easier for them to internalize it and then make a decision. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's get back to the sales topic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a dangerous chat, me and you. Yeah. So thinking about you know, um, I guess what role does understanding consumers in terms of their buying journey and different stages of the funnel play into the insights for, you know, to actually have an impact on on sales and revenue? Oh, I mean, obviously it's huge. I'm not going to say, oh, no, that's not important. (laughs) But I think that the bigger key is it's understanding it is number one. And then number two, it's knowing how to action on different areas of the funnel. So, and the, and the fact that you funnel just reminded me of something. So um, when I was at Electrolux, um, we realized that we were advertising, we, were, we had some ads on some different websites and things that we were doing. And one of the ads that we were, one of the websites that we were promoting was on a review site. And what we, what we realized is that we were promoting an awareness ad campaign on a review website when what we realized about appliances was that 
people had already made a decision by the time they went to review websites. Mm. And then it was basically just confirming the decision that they'd already made. Maybe it was like a disaster check saying, all right, I've, I've decided I'm going to buy this Frigidaire refrigerator. And now I'm just going to go to this review site and make sure that it's not just a crappy product, <laughs> you know, that other people have reviewed it well, whatever. So that is a very end of the funnel decision. But yet we were having banner ads touting, like trying to get people aware of a new line of products that we had. And so by simply understanding once we got a better handle on the on the on the journey of uh, the appliance buying journey, we simply said, all right, well, we can still advertise on the review site, but let's have a different ad there rather than something that's top of the funnel that's on a bottom of a funnel website. And so I think it just there's so it opens up a lot of things you understand you know, the decisions that the consumer is making at each stage of the process. And then it helps you understand what information do they need at each stage? Where should we be advertising? What should we be saying? How should we be communicating with them? What tone should we be taking? Um, you know, it's all of those things that, that really matter because again, we're trying to help them make a decision and we're trying to help them, you know, obviously our, you know, our job is to help them behave in a way we want them to behave. You know, we want them to buy our product, not our competitor's product. Mm -hmm. And so the more that we understand that and can articulate it, the better it is. And then the other thing I would say is, is what's overlooked a lot of times is the fact that every decision that we make as humans is emotionally driven. And there's a lot of research that backs this up, but you know, sometimes we just want to focus on the rationality of the data and humans don't act rationally. I mean, it's, we, you and I both have done so much work where we're just like, no, that's so irrational, but yet it makes perfect sense to the person who made the decision because it was an emotional decision. And then a lot of times we try to back up that emotional decision with rational facts that we, that fit our story. Um, and most of the techniques in traditional market research have been measuring this system two type work and it's all after the fact justification of emotional decisions. And so it's, it's important that we understand the emotional drivers behind those different stages of whatever our consumer goes through, because that's how they're basing their decisions. Yeah, that's totally true. Everybody, you know, whether it's a, a business purchase or a personal purchase, it's an emotional decision. We justify it later. Even if you haven't actually made the purchase, you've decided later. Yeah, and that's why people are going to the review site, right? They already made the decision I because like the color of that washing machine. They're you know, it was really, yeah, it was really fun. One time we did this where we were, we, uh, again, when I was with Electrolux, we went with couples who were in the market for a new refrigerator and we went to a Lowe's and we, and, and so what we asked them up front was what's your budget? You know, what are you going to spend on, on your new refrigerator? And we asked them to give us their, their budget parameters because we didn't want them to, to try to focus on the, something that they couldn't afford. And so we said, OK, they said our budget is you know, twenty two hundred dollars. And then we'd say, OK, go through the lows here. Take your time in the appliance section and tell us which refrigerator that you'll buy, which is within your budget. And so they would spend some time and they come back to us and they'd say, OK, we're going to buy this one. And then we'd ask why. And it would usually come down to something functional, like price, features, things like that. So they say, well, we went with this one because it has um, this cubic feet for that space. 
And we're like, well, if it's space is your issue, you could have got that one over there because it's within your price range and it's bigger. It's like, oh, well, what we like the features. We like how this one had this or this one had this. Well, you could have bought that one because that has the features that you said, plus it's bigger and it's still within your price range. And so we would do this several times. And then finally, one or both of them would say, oh, but it's just so gorgeous. <laughs> or I could just picture it in my kitchen the minute I saw it. And I'm like, boom, that's what did it. And so then they used price, feature, size, a lot of those other things as justification for this is, I could immediately picture this in my kitchen, which is emotional, or the design, which is emotional. And so then we started to realize how much emotion is wrapped into appliance purchases, which, you know, really seemed very functional for a long time. But when you consider most people own their appliances for 10 to 12 years, anything you enter into a relationship with for that long is going to be a high level of emotion involved with it. And so I think that's an important thing is like, what is the emotion that's involved with your product, your brand, and the whole shopping process? Because without that, it, you won't be able to, to accurately be consumer, you, you won't be fully consumer centric or be able to accurately recommend what to do because you don't understand what they're thinking. You're just seeing outputs of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what you've just described, like what that says to me, too, is not just like how emotional these decisions are, but how hard it is to get there. Yep. Like it's buried under so many layers of this mm -hmm. rationality that we use to justify it, that the, the research that needs to be done to get to that point, like when you think you've hit it, like you got to keep going <laughs> to get a little deeper because there's yeah. always more below the surface of really why people are making those decisions. Yeah, because that's why you see a lot of people are, you know, because we would get we got pushback from our sales team when we were talking about that stuff because they were saying, well, everything's price driven. And I said, well, if that's the case, then why doesn't everybody just buy a top mount refrigerator, which is the freezer on the top and the uh, the refrigerator on the bottom, what some people call their beer fridge nowadays. <laughs> but it's, you know, the same kind of fridge we had in our student apartments in college or in our first apartments, you know, when we were on our own. I said, that's the cheapest thing we make. So why doesn't everybody just do that? And they said, well, some people don't want that. I said, oh, so it's not about price then. It's about style, you know? And so when I think it's just, we've been conditioned to think that it's those rational things that, that really have caused people to make their decisions when it's really not. And so I think it's just educating. It's, it's showing proof. You know, we'd have, to, we'd have to back that up, you know, with really good data. And we would use videos. We would use consumers to really bring it to life. But it's, we have to put in the work. We have to put in the effort. You know, and a lot of that, it kind of goes back to us is that it's not just running a survey or doing a study. I mean, it is we have to do the work and we've got to really dig into what's going on. And, and very rarely is it going to be one study that's going to answer all of our questions for us. And again, but we have to make sure that what we're doing is actually answering the question. Going back to what we're saying about methodologies, not worrying about a methodology, but worrying about how is this going to answer my questions or, or solve the problem that's in front of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a good segue as you're talking about the sales teams, like what sort of information, what insights do like we talk a lot, I'll back up a second. We talk a lot on this show and just in all our conversations, like how, 
what information does marketing need to make their decisions from insights? Like what information does product and innovation teams need in order to make their decisions? Like one of the things we almost never talk about is sales and how insights can support sales. Like what sort of information do they need to be able to do their jobs better? Yeah. So what I'll, 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 I'll back up a second and say one of the best things that we can do in our industry is to recruit salespeople to come into Consumer Insights because it gives us a different perspective uh, on our own industry. And then you're dealing with people who were end users of what we were offering and that they can better tell us and coach us and help our industry be better at working with salespeople. And so I've always advocated to bring in people from outside of the Consumer Insights industry into Insights positions but especially salespeople because they really help train us that way. For me, it was taking a sales, uh, it was taking a position at PepsiCo in the field on a sales team. And oh my gosh, I learned, I, I thought I was, I thought I was, you know, con- I thought I was, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? I thought I was uh, revenue driven and worrying about sales before then. And then I got there and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not as much as I need to be. And because if you're not helping them sell stuff, you're just taking up space. And so just that role for the two years just taught me so much about it. So to answer the question, what I would say is it's different for everyone. There's no way I could sit here and say, this is what marketing needs. This is what sales needs. It's whatever. It's you have to know your audience. And that's why asking questions up front is so important um, and not just being order takers and, and listening to what we have. Like, I mean, I love it when people would come to me in my various roles and like, hey, Brett, we need to do focus groups. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> They're like, hey, Brett, we need to do an ANU. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> and, it's, and it was just saying, okay, let's talk about it. It's like, before we worry about how we're going to talk to the consumer, let's talk about what your question is. Let's talk about what the problem is. Let's talk about what success looks like from this. And so what I would say is every marketing project I did had a different answer that they wanted. Every sales thing, other than, of course, how do we sell more stuff, had a, had a slightly different angle to it. And so we have to treat each one of these things under the umbrella of, yes, everything we do is is going to lead to sales, but how we go about that is going to vary from project to project, from company to company, from department to department, whatever. And so it's not me trying to evade the question, but it's just in my experience, it's we have to ask those questions as to what do you need from this? What does success look like? How am I gonna deliver on this? really understanding the real problem to solve before we even go do anything. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I think too, like, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how insights can be more proactive. Like the more you're asking those questions as, you know, there's always going to be questions coming to insights. We need to understand this. Can you help us understand the more you dig into the what's behind that question, then you do have the ability to be more proactive because you know, hey, sales really cares about X right now. Mm -hmm. I know this because of these last five projects I did for them. Then you can proactively bring them information that they haven't asked for and add even more value. I mean, that's really what everybody's everybody's after. Um, Because to that point, Jen, one of the things that happens in our industry is we're too often accused of of working in silos. 
you know, mm -hmm. and just doing the data and not really understanding the business. And with the insights teams that I that I led, um, I made it I made it a requirement of my team to attend the monthly business review meetings, the monthly team meetings of the groups that they supported, because it, it, we had to get better at our business acumen. And to your point about being proactive, it's hard to be proactive as an insights person if you don't understand the business. And so when you are in those business review meetings, and, and sometimes it wasn't part of the, of the, we weren't part of the invite, and I would have to go to that leader and say, I would really like to be invited to this meeting, or I would really like so-and-so on my team who supports you to be in this weekly team meeting with you and in your monthly business reviews, because I need them to learn more about your business because it's going to help them be better. Who would say no to that? You know, and I, nobody ever did. Right. And so what it does is it takes us out of the silo and puts us into the business. And it helps us with our acumen. It helps us understand things. So then what would happen every single time is that the insights people were the ones driving the agenda, not the other way around. And it's like, oh, because we know this is going on or because we know this is the business problem or we know that we're, we need to develop this over here, I'm going to propose that we do certain research projects that will answer these questions and solve these problems rather than wait for people to come to me. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's such a huge thing that we have to do. And you know, I mean, and again, it's not that nobody's doing it, but it's not happening on the level that it should, where we truly understand all aspects of the business. And that's why, you know, what was so great about working for the large companies that I worked with was the opportunity to really get a vast experience in a lot of different areas to learn how to work with different um, different audiences, different constituents, different cross-functional teams, different consumers, um, different salespeople, and just re and different parts of the business so that you can sit back and really understand how the business works overall. Such a huge part of what we should be doing in Insights. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, yeah, the conversation comes up a lot. And uh, to your point, it's not like it's not happening ever. Um, but that's always the missing piece when people are saying, hey, I'm frustrated. I'm not getting, you know, my seat at the table the way I think I should. It's it's usually not under not having that business acumen that you mm -hmm. that you shared and being super involved with the teams. That or not delivering value where people want to pull a seat up at the table for you to sit in. Right. You know, so it's not only are we are we doing that, but it's but it's are we do we have the business acumen and understand the business, but are we delivering results that are impactful and actionable and meaningful? And mm -hmm. you know, in many cases, you know, some companies insights has a seat at the table without even asking for it because those leaders recognize that hey, we need insights there. So it's a matter of adding value to that seat you're in. But for a lot of other organizations, it's earning the seat at the table by showing our value. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And another interesting kind of piece from your experience is, you know, you've you've worked on the on the brand side on both the retail side and the product side of different businesses. So when thinking about how Insights is supporting sales, like what are some what are maybe some things to think about that? You know, how how are you at Electrolux supporting your teams that are working with Lowe's or, you know, the other channel partners? And what are the expectations of that partnership, vice versa? Like, how can Insights support that relationship? 
Yeah, that's a good one, especially when you're on the brand side and you're dealing with retailers. Um, what I found is that most of the work that I did when I was at PepsiCo and Electrolux was actually with the retailers themselves. I was working mm. with the merchants and with the, the buyers. It wasn't always working with the insights people at those retailers. Um, and so it's helping the helping the merchants make the decisions that they need to make. And ideally, when we are seen as being an objective third party, um, even though we're there representing a brand or a company and everybody knows that, if we can just come in and say, look, this is this is what consumers are looking for in refrigerators or this is the 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 journey when it comes to buying an appliance. Here are the issues that are along the way and here's how we're solving those. Um, it, it's just really helping them feel comfortable with with the sales pitch, <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that's the best way when you're on the brand side is to really have them take you to those meetings and include you in those meetings and then showing the value once we're there. Um, there was a guy who worked with me, Daniel Cassidy, um, who uh, was so good with working with uh, sales teams and with retailers that our sales teams at Electrolux never would go to a, a, a sales meeting without him without a, to a, to a client meeting without him, because he, he just immersed himself so much into that business. He understood it. He knew how to talk to them and everything that he did brought value. And so it's like, Oh, we're going to go meet with Lowe's. Daniel's got to come or we're going to reschedule the meeting. <laughs> I mean, that's ideally that's what we'd love to get to. And, and so that's kind of where we're at is helping them um, with that. And then when I was at Lowe's, it was really helping the merchants have a point of view about the category. Because one of the things that I heard when I got to Lowe's was, you know, a lot of times we just get the point of view of the brands that are coming in and presenting to us. And we're just kind of listening and being presented to, we need to have our own point of view of the category and what we think should be happening and what we want to be doing and then have them fit to that more of the other way around. And so and so that's what you can do for your merchant teams is to provide that context and provide the landscape and provide the real insights as to here's where we should stand on this issue or with this category or here are the major things that we need our brand vendors to come in and solve for us. And so it's just that's all people want is just give me answers, <laughs> you know, give me solutions, give me ways to help make my job a little easier. You know, we're just, we're greasing wheels here. We're just, we're trying to make the engine go and, and trying to help people make quicker, better decisions with maybe less information than what they've had in the past, but still things that are rooted in, in the consumer and rooted in sound business practices. Amazing. Super helpful. Okay. My final question for you. Um, how do you, if you're, you know, an insights leader, how do you measure the success of what you're doing when it when it comes specifically to supporting sales efforts? Like, how do you know that your the your approach and your what your day to day work that you're doing is actually working and having the impact that you want it to? So there's a couple of levels. One of my favorite qualitative people, um, her name is Gina Fong. And she said years ago when I first met her, she said, how do you know when you've delivered a good insight in a presentation? And, you know, we were kind of looking around and she said, with the number of heads nodding in the room. 
And it's something as simple as that. And I think we've all been there where we're talking about a consumer truth in a way that people can really understand. And people are sitting there going, hmm. You know, it's like, that's a great sign <laughs> when there's a lot of silence and a lot of head nodding. So it's as simple as that in the presentation. And then obviously the other, the you know, to take simplicity, the other end, it's what we're recommending gets implemented. You know, is it happening? Do, I mean, are, are they, do they continue to come back to us as gatekeepers or as advocates of the consumer to make sure that they're doing it the right way? Um, you know, how watered down is what we recommend to what actually gets launched. Sometimes it's our fault, sometimes it's not. But I think the way that we can really measure what we're, the impact we're having is how much of the work that we do ends up on the shelf, on the floor, um, on the website, whatever else. If we could, I mean, it's just, it, it, I see it so often where these big expensive research projects that takes weeks or sometimes months to do and you, it ends up being a, you know, a, a, a paperweight in your office or a file that gets lost on somebody's computer that nobody ever really knows. And so, I mean, it's as simple as simply measuring how much of what we do ends up being executed and activated. And that's why I always talk to, and one of the, the other things I'm really big on is that we have to be better as an industry at taking credit for our work. Like we're terrible at it. Like marketing always takes credit for our work <laughs> or sales always takes credit for insights work, but we rarely take credit for that. And so when I'm sitting there in, in my year end reviews on the, on the uh, corporate side, I'm, I, I come equipped with sales figures. You know, I am constantly hounding the marketing and the salespeople. I'm like, I need to know the results from this thing that we did with you because I need to show that we're making an impact. And, and so I, and so I'm like always telling insights, people quantify everything you do. You know, don't, don't be afraid to go in there and say, you see this product that, that, you know, sold at a 125 index to what we thought it would. It's because of us <laughs> in part, you know, like we delivered the insight, the consumer insight that came up with this product that drove this, whatever else. But sometimes we're afraid to do that. You know, the success of a marketing campaign or an ad campaign or something like that. If you worked on it, take credit for it because you had product. And it's not like to say we did it all ourselves, but but a lot of times we're not taking credit for anything. And it's a lot of times why consumer insights budgets are part of non-working dollars instead of working dollars, because they view a lot of what we do as a cost center instead of contributing to sales. And so one of the coolest things that I was able to do at Electrolux was to get the innovation portion and the product development portion of my budget put into non-working dollars, uh, excuse me, to put into working dollars because it was an acknowledgement that what we were doing was leading to product development, which was leading to sales, which was leading to company success. And so why count that as non-working dollars when it actually is working for sales? So that was a huge win for us. Um, but yeah, just kind of taking that working mentality and just is what we're doing showing up Love it. Great. And if it's not, then finding out why going back and debriefing and going back to the sales team or the marketing team is like, what could we have done better? Why didn't this product end up the way that we thought? Or why did the version that we presented get so watered down when it actually launched? And so I think it's just making sure that we understand our own shortcomings so that it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And it sounds like really like connecting those dots for people and not just mm -hmm. letting it, you know, 
the job isn't done at the recommendation, no. right? It's then connecting the dots to what happens after and the results of what happens after and to tie it back to the work. Because if you're seen as the true consumer advocate, they are always going to come back to you for, for questions. And it happens all the time. It's like, okay, hey, we're on this next stage. Tell us again about the tone that we should be taking with this particular ad that the consumer liked or didn't like, or this particular feature, you know, how important is it compared to this other one? Because we have to choose, we can't have both. So then we're constantly feeding that information. So really it's a constant iterative process. And then even when the product's launched and on the shelf, there's still work to do there too. But I mean, but, but you know, you are being, you know, you're having a lot more success when it is much more of an iterative process from beginning to end than simply, well, this is the stage gate where we do consumer insights. We check the box and then you don't ever hear from them again. Right. Totally. Yeah. That's the goal, right? It's to just be fully integrated and immersed mm -hmm. and just constantly giving feedback. Um, well, this is amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, thank um, you. Loved hearing your perspective. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, great to chat. Thanks again for inviting me on. Appreciate being here. Absolutely. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We'll be back with another episode later this week when Laura Eddy of Realtor.com joins us. We'll see you then.